And then, like you said, the book pretty abruptly ends with they were at without Condronas for three weeks, and we will find out next time on the Morpher. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for a break in the rain Waiting for the moment to change your lane I came home from the wasteland Heroic and triumphant like a comic book girl Created out of nothing like a comic book girl Hey! Let's introduce ourselves for our professor. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, everybody. What's up? Who are you people? I've never met you before. (laughs) Uh, I'm Brad. I use he, they pronouns. Uh, I'm Parker. I use she, her. And I got an email from Professor Bradley a little while ago saying I talk too fast during recording, and I have no idea what he's talking about. What'd you say? You spoke a little too fast there. I couldn't understand you. I was just saying that I have no idea what he's talking about. I mean, he says I talk too fast. (laughs) I mean, clearly, oh I'm talking in a reasonable human tone of voice. So. Um, my name is Erso, and I use she, her pronouns. And yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this journal that we have here before us today. This is another one that actually that I didn't have a physical copy of, which was very sad. I had to join all you plebeians. <laughs> is this one that you managed to order? or Oh, no, you, you specifically just said that you were reading the PDF. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what 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 was it that we read, guys? Uh, Albert Camus' essential piece of existential fiction, *The Stranger*. <laughs> <laughs> we read *Ghost in the Shell*, *First Assault*, *Standalone Complex Online*. <laughs> okay, we we read *Animorphs* Volume Seven, *The Stranger*, not Albert Camus' uh, landmark work of uh, philosophical thought, just the *Animorphs* journal. well this one gets pretty out there i will say boy howdy does it yeah i'm yeah that's part of the reason i'm really excited to talk about this one because wow we oh my goodness (laughs) this is one of those things that i'm always just like was this made up you know this one of those fake things some of the stuff that goes on here definitely stretches the realms of plausibility but we got the history to back it up, so... Yeah, we... I mean, I guess. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. I'm gonna be... I'm gonna be the Cassandra of this um, this recording, because Where she's not she, here. Yeah. Um, I don't actually know. Um, I think she just messaged all of us and just said that she wasn't gonna be available, and that's the extent of it. So I'm looking forward to her return, but... Indeed. She's probably just feeling unwell or something. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I missed last uh, last week. I was depressed. Don't tell it to me. Tell it to Mr. Leon. <laughs> I can ver- I could verify Brad had a couple too many shots of depresso. <laughs> Where's your espresso? We gotta get the caffeine up in here. Oh, how is your espresso? How is your caffeine today? I have like a quart of yerba mate here, so I'm doing great. Ooh, very nice. I'm drinking. Um, water. <laughs> awesome. Good. Thank you. It's very clear. And I am drinking coffee 
from a French press that I just bought because I wow. miss French coffee. Wait, that's actually really exciting. I was like, we're anyway. We should talk about the book. Yeah, let's talk about the book. I could talk about coffee forever. <laughs> yeah, coffee's coffee's good. I think we all agree. Um, right off the bat, uh, first couple sentences. My name is Rachel, and you know the drill. Finally, an acknowledgement that we are seven books deep into this uh, this multi part saga, and we've read some of it before. That this is not our initial entry point. Is this the first uh, book where they don't talk about the construction set? They don't. They don't. No, they mention they mention they mention Elfangor. It's a pretty complex story, um, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know why they always felt the need to repeat it. We get straight to the point, and Rachel uses her classic brash attitude to just slam dunk for us right into the narrative. <laughs> we start out with Rachel and Cassie at the circus with Rachel's father and her two sisters. I believe this is the first time that they've been mentioned in the journals thus far. Um, Rachel uh, objects to the way that the elephant handler is treating the elephants. And I mean, we just have everything by holograms now. It's kind of like, ugh. you kind of hate to remember that uh, back in the day, people did mistreat animals in this way for human entertainment. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Rachel takes on bridge with this, uh, convinces Cassie in a, a real great bit of dialogue to um to sort of come along with her to do some some animal rights shenanigans uh and then morphs an elephant and grabs hold of the trainer and thought speaks to him and convinces him to uh pursue a different course of action with the animals that he's working with yeah i feel like the animorphs at this point have taken a no one will ever believe you tack as far mm, as mm -hmm. just mind speaking to random civilians yeah they're leaning a little hard on that and their, their policy is just like oh and if it's a controller that we're talking to we'll just like knock them out or you know they won't kill anyone but marco will definitely throw people into a dumpster <laughs> we, can, we can discuss that towards the end of the book um, what the body count is on this book. <laughs> we definitely run into that again, where I feel like they're, I, I am, I'm reticent to, you know, as, as a, as a, uh, an Animorphs journal fundamentalist, I am, I'm reticent to, uh, make great logical leaps from what is being told to us. Like, I like to, I like to think that the, the basics of the truth are being presented here, but even I find the notion that, uh, this much combat happens uh and apparently like almost no one dies i'm i feel like this is the the the, the border of the realm of plausibility i'm a few hork die that's for sure <laughs> definitely a few hork die who i maintain like not all of them are uh cooperating controllers a lot of them were taken over against their will i think that that's pretty explicitly the case as as um described in the first book yeah i mean the taxons are the only species that we have met so far who are all pretty uniformly like cooperating with the yurks sort of on purpose we went over this a little bit before but i think the jeds are the only ones who have something bordering that um aside from the taxons um and the taxons were just sort of like well i'm hungry so 
Yeah. If oh, you boy. provide food, I will just go in that direction. Oh, man, we'll get more into taxon appetites later in this journal. Holy cow. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> the the next bit is that um, Rachel and Cassie kind of <laughs> report back <laughs> to the rest of the animorphs speak like, yeah, um... <laughs> Remember how we yelled at Marco earlier about how vigilante justice is going to get him killed? Yeah, and this they're, this book is full of them going off and doing things and not telling the others. Because right after that, Marco comes back and says, Oh yeah, we pulled all this secret mission stuff and surveillance that we didn't tell anybody about. I know, right? That's It's pretty wild. I, um... Yeah. Especially some... after they, they all get sort of reprimanded for doing random stuff like last journal jake gets reprimanded for morphing a cockroach and this one jake uh, rachel gets reprimanded for just like flying around to deal with her emotions <laughs> i feel like this is uh i think i feel like this kind of exposes a cultural gulf between back in the 1990s and how we do things now because i feel like the culture now is much more open and much more just sort of like you tell your friends things you know and granted like you know people still have the messy sort of like oh you know when they're when they're teens they're trying to figure out what friendship is but you communicate with your friends like we've learned enough from Shakespeare that if you confer if you communicate enough with your loved ones, nobody has to die. They haven't learned <laughs> that yet, uh, which is pretty clear later on in uh, Rachel's quote unquote conversation with Tobias. Uh, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, but yeah, there's a what, lot of what levels of Shakespeare reading do you think our heroes are at currently? I mean, Just they're in glance. high school, right? They've probably read Romeo and Juliet, which is like a central book in the communicate with your loved ones and nobody has to die sort of <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> which Shakespeare did y'all have to read in middle school? Um... In middle school specifically? <laughs> or just between the ages of 12 and 15? Hamlet? Yeah, I was a humanity student, so we read Hamlet, uh, Macbeth, Othello. We did the wildest project. We read Taming of the Shrew, mm -hmm. um, which just enraged me. Um, <laughs> and then got to do a creative project where we did an adaptation and we made this like really cringy, really low quality VR experience of like interpreting like two scenes out of the book. Um, that I acted in and directed, and it was so bad. <laughs> My sister was in a uh, Commedia dell'arte, sort of like, quote-unquote, gender-swapped version of The Taming of the Shrew, where she played the male lead, um, and did an excellent job, just, like, strutting around the stage. Like, she learned, like, the walk and the talk and stuff like that. It's like, it was very funny to see her play this extremely macho dude. Oh, uh, <laughs> Axe comes in, we get a little bit of, uh, in this sort of meeting, you know, as Cassie and Rachel are meeting in with the rest of the Anwars, Axe comes in, um... Rachel's describing acts. She says, but his back slopes down so you would never be tempted to think of riding him. Yes, oh my god. Are we <laughs> sure? Moment. Like, am I going to offend anybody by saying that I've definitely thought about just, like, riding a strided Andalite into battle at one point or another? Um, my... So my, my best friend is an Andalite, 
and we've had a couple like we've joked about this from time to time but it does like i don't know i think it gets kind of old especially given like the knowledge about horses <laughs> and like i don't know would it occur to you do do andalites carry their like kids like for fun i don't believe so um no <laughs> like if there's any like period right after birth whenever when that happens um i don't believe so um and Ooh, i just they, think like, that they find deer and they like they like can stand when they're i'm, I'm gonna stop now <laughs> if it makes if it's it makes any wise. of our andalite listeners feel better about my comments about wanting to ride one into battle um if it makes you feel any better, I will regularly also do this with human people. Uh, I will just, like, leap onto their backs and say, Charge, Steed! Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, I wanted to do that with cats, so it's not exclusive to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, this is just a deeply ingrained part of my brain that applies to everyone. I love my small girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm tiny enough I can get away with it most times. Um, this is going back a little bit. Rachel has a line when she's trying to sneak into the back Uh, Oh, yeah, here, I found it. There were security guards around the perimeter of the area, but I wasn't worried about them. I've gone one-on-one with Hork-Bajir warriors. After you fought one of those seven-foot-tall walking razor blades, regular old humans don't scare you much. Hi, I'm Rachel, and now that I've gotten into a fistfight with an alien, I respect no authority! (laughs) Rachel, are you currently an elephant? I don't think so. So, like, why don't you wait? Care like, why don't you wait like sixty seconds to be not impressed by that dude who could probably just like punch you in the face? Honestly, like I've heard it said that like true believers are the most dangerous people in the world because they will be able to justify anything in service of their goal. That's Rachel. <laughs> I would say yes. Like that's Rachel, but also like even if she's not a true believer, or even if she wasn't. Um, a teenager who's beat up some aliens and now respects no authority whatsoever is probably, like, right up there in terms of most dangerous people. Right. Like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, I love I love this instinct about her and this, this sort of, like, this sort of casual disregard for deterrence. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So we get some pretty in-depth <clears throat> moments with... Rachel, this, I gotta be honest, this journal hit me pretty hard in a lot of spots. Um, like, the, the stuff that Rachel deals with in this journal is so incredibly real and so incredibly, like, intense for her. And, like, such a good way of showing how difficult it is to deal with everything else on top of, like, it just, like, the responsibilities that she has as an anamorph is sort of, like paralleled by her personal life and everything with her dad and like the choice that she's forced to make that a a kid should never have to make i can relate it's pretty pretty intense stuff and her her dad seems pretty blasé about it (laughs) the whole time but um so just to recap what actually happened so she after having this sort of fun outing day with her father who is divorced from uh, rachel's mother um he sort of plans an emergency dinner and comes over with Thai food and like they're all eating and it's a little awkward and um, he mentions his new job opportunity which will move him out of state to the next state over. 
Brad, you had some really interesting thoughts about the particulars of this um, of this conversation, and also the particulars about where things might be occurring. Oh, oh, where? Oh, my! Oh, going to the like, where do we think everything is? Yeah, um, I don't know. When you were telling me about that earlier, while you were reading it, your thought process was fascinating. And I yeah, I cool. I forgot. I didn't fact check it, so I forgot to to check whether this is real. But there's this old soap opera called Make It or Break It. That's about teenage gymnasts, like Olympic level gymnasts training in Denver. And that's like one of the most prestigious teams is in Denver in this show. And I assume that it was just like, okay, they just picked Denver for whatever reason. And it's just like fictional. And then Rachel's dad describing to her. So Rachel's dad offers her that like he's moving, but she could come with him. She's old enough to make that choice which is a completely unfair thing to expect of a 13-year-old. Absolutely. Um, but he's describing it and all of the all of the things that they like to do together. Rachel talks about her gender a lot in this book. Uh, but like all the things that she loves to do with her dad are very coded masculine things. They love they love hiking and rock climbing. They love sports. Her dad was a very high-level gymnast as well and Rachel then became a gymnast. Rachel actually specifically mentioned sexism, which I, I found fascinating. Like, I don't know, I mean, I think she has a pretty good read on the situation. Yeah, so this show is set in Denver and the stuff that her dad describes, the fact, I mean, it's a real city, that there's real mountains nearby and that one of the most prestigious, like, gym gymnastics trainers take students in Denver, or the, he didn't say in Denver, but like in that, the city that they're going to is where one of the most prestigious gymnastics gyms and like my first thought was like oh he's moving to the big city he's moving to chicago um but that would be too far and a thousand miles like i think that that's a a reasonable estimate would be somewhere between a thousand and two thousand miles i would have i didn't look it up anyways my gender thoughts on this so this was the 90s and we were still we were very much still like even as like women's equality in the workplace was gaining more mainstream acceptance still women were still expected and considered like primary caregivers and even as people acknowledged oh women can have careers but their primary focus or the thing that they go back to or the thing that should be most important to them is having children and taking care of their children. And this fueled a lot of inequality in who gets promoted and inequality in wages. So the idea of a woman going to another city, leaving her children with their father, whether they're divorced or not, would have been absolutely scandalous and absolutely considered like you are heartless. Mm -hmm. um, like you are like it. it people would have just completely excoriated her. Mm -hmm. But it's fine for him to just pursue his career. Yeah, and people would do that to particularly female politicians, like women doing very important jobs, women who were very smart and very like, had a lot to contribute to the world and they were deciding to do that and be a mom. Like they're still a mom, but that like, the work they were doing was worth the time that was going into it. You did imply that politicians had important jobs, which I will, I will, I have a bone to pick with you about that. But I mean, are, consi are considered by society important jobs. Fair enough, fair enough. 
like culturally this is an important job that if a man who had children spent a lot of his time doing that, he wouldn't be considered negligent. But a woman who did would be, even though, again, culturally, it's work that really needs to get done. Um, I just watched a TV show where a woman who has a child goes on a dangerous space mission to uh, investigate this unknown object that landed on Earth. And she is an incredibly experienced pilot and leader and sp- an astronaut and she is chosen for this mission because she can lead the team and because this is set more in the future from the perspective of the 90s you know it's it's a part it's a struggle in the plot but it's never like because she's a woman or at least not externally there's still like that internal feeling but it's a feeling that any parent would have going away from their children even to do something very important. He's going, Rachel's dad is going a thousand miles away so he can get a promotion. For more money. For money money and prestige for himself. He offers her to like, to take her with him, which would mean that she would be leaving the Animorphs. She would be leaving the fight. She wouldn't. Which is kind of a theme in this book. Yes. She definitely thinks about it. Like, I, I mean, ultimately, obviously, her sort of conclusion is like, no, nah, I'm going to stay here. Well, I think she only entertains the thought insofar as like, oh, like, how much of a normal person am I still? Like, how much of a capacity do I have to make this decision at all? Right. And how much am I called by duty to, you know, save the f- planet? Mm-hmm. Save the f- planet is right. <laughs> The Animorphs meet up and Marco indicates that he's found an entrance to the primary yerk pool. Um, yeah, this is huge. This is so... This is huge. This is like, enormous. the last time we were here was in the very first journal and that went poorly. But um, also they know a little bit more about the Condrona now and ways that they might be able to use this intel to actually like strike a blow against the yerks. Uh, and they basically are just like, well, we got to go back. We got to go back into the, you know, the belly of the beast here, the uh, the gaping maw of the Yerk war machine, if you will, um, which is in a massive cavern underneath their entire town. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so Rachel's been sort of like hit with this doozy by the Animorphs and being like, yeah, we got to go back to the Yerk pool and kind of mess it up or at least do some recon. Um, and then simultaneously, she's having to deal with like her family being torn apart um, by money. Money. <laughs> oh, the end of chapter six is just, ooh. Um, Recount for us what happens. Um, how could he, my dad, expect me to make this decision? I couldn't leave my friends. I couldn't. They were counting on me. We were going back to the Yerk pool, and they were counting on me to be brave and strong. That's what they thought I was. But I, if I was so brave and so strong, why was I suddenly imagining a very different life? a long, long way from the war with the Yerks. Why was I imagining a life of gymnastics classes and ball games with my dad? A place where I was just a person, where no one would expect me to go back down into that hell of screams and despair called the Yerk Pool. If I was so brave and so tough, why was I imagining a normal life? Uh, yeah, I was just like, oof, like that hit me hard. Like I, Brad, like I kept interrupting Brad. Brad was trying to do something and I was just like, oh God, this book is so rough. Like I just kept doing that over and over while I was reading. 
Um, but like, ooh, that cut me deep, honestly. Uh, anybody who's been in a position where they have to do, you know, the right thing because they've got the means at hand, even if they're not necessarily craving for that responsibility, anybody who's been sort of put in that position, like, understands Rachel's struggle here, and it's rough. Well, oh, also, not, not to continually bring up parentification, but Rachel being given so much responsibility in her personal life um, and being made to make the decision between choosing between her sister and her mother as, or her father and, like, you know, that life that she's imagining is just, like, it's so, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. I think it's a theme at this point. I think parentification's a theme. We've seen it enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I... I feel like that's something uh true to the time period um so i was talking i was talking about like women doing going into the workplace more and like having that be part of their like part of their life and part of an important part of their life being going to work and doing things that are not related to their children and there was an ongoing attitude adjustment in the culture about that and accepting women doing that there was not yet corresponding attitude adjustment on the expectations of fathers to step in in proportion to like how much women needed to take more time to do things that were important to them but fathers yeah, were still doing the exact same amount mm -hmm. and so that the second left, shift sort yeah of style. yeah i feel like latchkey yeah. kid was yeah. a sort of type of um a way that kids described themselves if they like neither of their parents were home when they got home after school. Uh, one reason I think this this plan of theirs, which is to go down into the yerk pool and really mess stuff up, like, I think, that, like, their their idea is that they're going to take out the, uh, the Controna and then the Yerks are going to, like, some, uh, according to Axe in his sort of analysis of the plan, some of the Yerks are just going to starve. And given what we learned last journal in Volume 6... People are going to remember that they were controllers. Like, the cat is absolutely going to be out of the bag for the Yerks at this point, if this happens. Axe's, Axe's comments in this section about the plan just absolutely, like, <laughs> work to solidify his ridiculousness when it comes to, quote-unquote, Andalite propaganda against <laughs> Yerks. And um, <laughs> his, his, like... He, he, I think he says, like, the measure of, like, a warrior is, is like, by the strength of their enemies or whatever. Um, and everyone's like, excuse me, Axe, please chill. You have absolutely no, no idea how serious this is. We almost get Axe's toxic masculinity corner here. Yeah, I think that we might have to add that as a, as a section because, like, if, despite how much I love my boy, I don't know if I could you know, say there's... that it's toxic masculinity though, because it seems like a broader cultural force that isn't necessarily tied up in gender. I don't know. We've only ever met one gender of Andalites, so not, yeah, not to get too ahead of myself, but there is rampant sexism in uh, Andalites. <sighs> like it, in their culture, it is like a huge. It's a huge thing. It's I don't want to understate it at all and axe goes into this more but like andalite culture kind of moves at a different pace mm. to human culture mm -hmm. and so whereas revolution and all that kind of stuff have obviously taken place in uh, on earth among humans um, um on the andalite homeworld it is it works a little differently especially when it comes to 
the warrior culture. Tobias uh, presages bird school for birds, which is, of course, a real thing now. Uh, he mentions <laughs> that he could be the professor of ornithology at bird school for birds. Um, yes! I think he must have really inspired um, some just real intense go-getting birds. Ride those thermals up into heaven, my boy. <laughs> Indeed. Ride the, uh, ride the thermal of academic success. Rachel flies out of her room at night, goes and acquires a grizzly bear makes total sense for her honestly it's it fits her personality in the way that a hot rod fits like some greaser's personality and then they make their infiltration into the mall <laughs> the fact <laughs> the fact that the entrance to the yerk pool is in the um is in the, the dressing room of a gap for some reason is so funny to me they could have put them in the bathrooms or like anywhere just the gap i don't know um Axe attempts to eat a cigarette butt off camera, um, which is great. <laughs> they go back at a roach morphs. They decide to do this, unfortunately, in a room covered in mirrors. Um, I'm telling you, they really ought to just not do that. Um, and then they infiltrate the yerk pool? Yeah, they infiltrate the yerk pool. But yeah, so they, they infiltrate and are able to descend into the York lunchroom. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then they promptly get eaten by a taxon. Yeah, they get slapped by a taxon tongue and start... And then God speaks to them. In a different um, a different font. Yes, we get a third font here. Finally. There's an internet post, a historical internet post, where um, somebody sort of speculates that the Earth, or the, the, the known observable universe, is probably the science project of a middle schooler somewhere that got a C. As far as we know now, <laughs> that's how it is. Uh-huh. We are, the Animorphs are abruptly saved from death by the equivalent of that middle schooler. This is where uh, th this book's, um, th the fact that this journal shares a name with Albert Camus' ex existential, like, essential piece of existential fiction really uh, becomes hilarious and ironic um, because this is where the nihilism kicks in. This is where they're like, oh, literally nothing matters. Uh, but we'll get to that in a bit. They definitely do approach that moment. I, I would argue that the various perceptions of the Elemist are perhaps more important than the Elemist's abilities themselves and i think that also sort of plays a role a lot of things happen all at once yeah it's true time does physically... stops the animorphs sit down and the elemist puts on koyana squatsy <laughs> <laughs> we get a sort of a discovery channel view of the earth <laughs> i think time freezing is pretty pretty critical and they all un without without intentionally doing so demorph and also suddenly Tobias is there, also demorphed. And Rachel specifically describes this not feeling like a vision necessarily, but like actually feeling like they're there. Like she feels like she's underwater at one point in this sort of spiritual journey that the Elemist is taking them on. So that also sort of speaks to his abilities. If he like can see people's true forms, quote unquote, yeah. Oh well. Well, why did why is he taking them on this on this great journey? Flat the splash tour. He is giving them the opportunity to leave the fight and go with him in sort of a select few sample of humanity, along with people that they choose, like their families or whatever. 
to be saved from the Yurk Empire. He um, says that he can see the future and that they will fail. And he wants to save some of them because he shows them that the Earth is beautiful, naturally, and that he wants to... He, he enjoys what humanity is and what they have made. And um, he'd like a good sample. And he considers the Animorphs a good sample. Um, for whatever reason. Because they're the only humans who truly understand the stakes and, like, what is going on. Oh, yes. Good point. Yeah. And so he wants to, he wants to be able to preserve them, which they are all variously disturbed about. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> yeah! But also, um, I mean, again, we have this theme showing up. Rachel was given the option to leave the fight by going with her dad, which is this place that sounds really great. There's all these new opportunities and you can live with the people that you love in sort of a normal life, but you leave this all important battle behind. And that's what the Elemist is offering. And I don't think anybody says yes. I think except for Cassie because Cassie, yeah. her, I, I hate her reasoning here. <laughs> so it's so, ugh. Well, I think it's a, it's either it's a child's understanding okay so her reasoning is basically the elements what the elements are describing is like saving animals like environmentalism right mm-hmm. like humans are an endangered species the elements have otherworldly abilities that let them see that humans humanity is doomed that they are trying to do like what a zoo would do and take some animals out of the wild and put them in captivity. She was basically taking the sort of tiered, like, uh, idea of, like, animals and organisms that, like, the raccoons are below us, and we're above them, and that the elemists are above us in the same way, and sort of using that as a metaphor that's dubiously true, especially with how little she knows about the elemist having met them, like, immediately 10 10 seconds ago and she's just like well guys we should just trust them like cassie you're failing me here my girl what is up i think i I just i think the the capacity with which she's willing to like give up that like need to do the right thing and maintain the ability to choose is like pretty frustrating at this point but i mean also children might not be able to know better like or might not be able to reason properly when someone's like, oh, hey, I can make all your problems disappear. I think Cassie's approach is fatalist. I also absolutely understand her reasoning here. I get it completely. Um, We never, as far as I'm aware, talk about the various Animorphs' relationship to faith, the concept of faith. I feel like Cassie's operating more from faith here than from instinct yeah what the elements are describing is is almost messianic very much so very much like millennialism so yeah while i'm glad that like you know things worked out as they did because um cassie's approach makes total sense to me and i don't i don't know what i'm trying to say here does everybody know what messianic should i explain what that is it's it has to do with christianity go off brad (laughs) yes go off brad um, yeah, so in some sects of Christianity, their interpretation of the Bible, there's a book of the Bible called Revelations that describes 
basically the the it's the best and most metal book of the bible imho there's it's it's wild um anyways revelation is unquestionably metal though anyway you were saying it's very yeah it's very revelation is very metal and what brings about the end of the world is the return of jesus christ who's the quote-unquote messiah the like savior of humanity or of christians specifically and all of the christians who are quote-unquote saved that's that's sort of like a way of being that's not like like they are saved by action but also a descriptor of christians is low oh i am saved um so they get beamed off of earth to go live with god in heaven forever um (laughs) And then Earth is just left to be destroyed, um, like, and to become, like, I mean, this, this, you might remember this better than I do, the, like, bad stuff, but just... A lot of bad stuff. If you carry that as, like, this is the best thing that could happen while I am alive, I want to bring about, I want the rapture to happen because then this is God's will is for this to happen. Yeah. And whether or not Cassie's, whether or not Cassie's immediately influenced by this, like in that she's a part of that faith or whether it's sort of a, a greater cultural impact that she's being affected by is like mm. unclear. And she's not specified if she's, yeah. you know, any of their faiths in particular, but. Um, and it also has the, the prophecy idea, the idea of being able to see the future which she seems to be pretty on board with accepting that the Elemists can do that. Okay, so immediately after hearing this stuff from the Elemist, they forcibly demorph inside the taxon, bursting it from the inside and sort of spilling back out into the your cafeteria. This was the single most upsettingly visceral moment in the Animorphs journals that I have read so far. I was, like... Taxons are consistently viscerally upsetting. Oh, man, this was awful. This was awful to read. Yeah, it sucked. It was bad. <laughs> I would also like to, I'd also like to have a, a, a conspiracy corner moment here, uh, if I may jump in. Okay. In the time since these journals were published, scientists have synthesized several compounds from the various sort of bodily fluids of taxons that have hallucinogenic properties. And so there is a conspiracy theory that states that the Animorphs literally just hallucinated everything that happened. Which does not explain their their Back to the Future moment. It doesn't explain that you know how it happens again. But some people have taken some people have taken the Elemist's whole that whole this whole component of the narrative and been like, nah. This concludes my contribution to the conspiracy quarter for this episode. Cool. Uh, so there's this huge panic moment, and uh, <laughs> Cassie, Rachel, and Axe are separated from the rest of the gang, uh, and Rachel gets to test out her bear morph in attempting to just fight her way out of this situation, and she kind of just, like, loses it a little bit. She rides that motorcycle right to hell. Right to hell. Uh, right and to back out again. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, this is sort of her first moment with, I mean, she got the bear specifically because she was like, I don't know how else to deal with my problems. I want to be able to hit things really hard. I want to be the strongest, <laughs> which like, yeah, you go girl, do it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, elephant and bear. It's elephant and bear, weird. like do it up, honestly. She stumbles home in kind of a fugue state, uh, wakes up the next morning or is woken up uh, the next morning uh gets some flack from her mother who's like what is going on with my team um <laughs> you're wearing the clothes you came home in last night you came wandering in at 9 30 barefoot wearing your leotard and then you went to sleep immediately uh her <laughs> mom does not know what's going on rachel sip skip school to recover which like yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're dealing with enough and then she meets back up with the Animorphs in Chapter 17, and they chew her out. And I don't know why. I'm trying to... I, I'm, I'm thinking about it currently. I think... I don't know. I mean, I think... This might just be... They're all kind of stressed, and they're, like, looking for someone to... They are. It's true. Personally, for me, this topped the Antmorphic scenario as, like, the worst thing that has happened to them. They've all just been dealing nice. with a lot of stuff. But unfortunately, <laughs> they decide to dump on Rachel a bunch, and it sucks. Mm -hmm. um, Ant thing is still on top for me. Fair enough, that's fair. Um, Jake has, like, we see the uh, the crimes mm -hmm. of Jake's armor. He's just, I don't know, Rachel, I don't have any answers. I'm sick of trying to have answers. You decide. I don't want to argue with you. I don't know what your problem is, but you know what? You deal with it. Everybody expects to have that dynamic with Jake where he's, like, the responsible one and they can just sort of, like, yeah, and that's a like, lot get for their problems out. With. Yeah, it is, totally. Like, he's been dealing with a whole bunch of stuff himself. Like, I mean, I don't know. And she kind of, uh, Rachel drops her whole family situation on the group um marco attempts to sort of ease her by uh going sort of like retreating back into his his sort of like m mythos monomyth kind of brain frame where they are the heroes and rachel lashes out at him for that being like no i'm just a kid like i don't need i shouldn't have to be dealing with this stuff Marco sort of capitulates to the Elemist. Uh, eventually, they, they kind of all do. Oh, I do have a brief moment where if we could jump into Marco's masculinity corner for a hot second. And his name is John C. Marco comparing the end of the world to a sports season. Um, <laughs> and then... Oh, boy. And then almost immediately thereafter, once they... Uh, once they travel to the future marco immediately going into some back to the future money making shenanigans like uh, yes really... <laughs> this was a huge moment for me i love those movies i just watched them um with a friend and um i was like wow i'm so glad that i just watched them because i there's like a chance i might not have picked up this <laughs> incredibly incredibly good back to the future <laughs> i mean i presumably marco had just seen it a little while ago or it was just like i don't know it was something that he liked but yes yeah um, the second so. one came out in like 1990 i think so yeah. um, the, the, these are my contributions for marco's masculinity corner um yeah um so this is they're they're arguing again about what the elemist is proposing and like his his point of view that he's just trying to save a little bit of the human race. He's just trying to get us out of a trap and fix our broken bones. Earlier, there was a comparison to like animal conservation and the difference between what the Elemist is proposing and what zoos do is that zoos, they don't only just like capture animals to like save a few animals. Zoos and the environmental movement in general um, at that time and in the throughout the 20th and 21st century have fought 
the root causes of species going extinct mm. like studying them work finding ways to preserve habitats finding ways to re reinvigorate habitats so that the animals can repop like repopulate and stay in the places where they belong um environmentalists care and by the environment and not just conservation what the elemist is proposing is not a zoo and he's not a conservationist he is proposing a menagerie on a an interplanetary scale he isn't taking a side with the humans he's just trying to for his own betterment as just like what he wants and what he think is good for his society or the universe is saving a few humans but not taking a side mm-hmm. the way a true environmentalist would right i think this is sort of the, the key moment when he gives them the choice that ultimately the elemist's power is called into question because sure he can stop time and he can hang out with the animorphs for like 10 minutes or whatever but if he was quote unquote all powerful um why would he not make this decision for them or make them do it if he actually knew what was going to happen and the animorphs realize this and they sort of discuss it amongst themselves it's a classic theology problem actually like i think it's the epicurean paradox uh it's a paradox about divine providence and like the ability of like a deific figure to sort of like manipulate stuff it has a lot to do with evil. It's a little bit too like deep to get into right now, but um, what we sort of the like book touches out, on the subject. Yeah, what they end up figuring out though um, is that that's not what's like you know that that sort of idea of is going to present them with this opportunity to do a menagerie sort of thing and like is not allowed to care about their like the outcome isn't actually what's going on. Like they figure that out. Um, because of what goes on in the future. No one uses fax machines, but call, you'll hear the noise. Statues left by ancient Greeks, the perfect cheeks of goddesses and boys. Piled in the closet, broken toys. So let's get to that, that future scene. What are the, when the Alamus takes them into the future, what? In fact, did they see? A lot of bad stuff. A lot of bad stuff. And sort of what might happen if the Yerks win, which is just in that moment, sort of the Animorphs' greatest fear. They see some bad stuff. Their world has effectively been taken over. Most of the human population is dead. Uh, The mall has basically become a taxon hive. Um, And eventually, uh, they meet up with Visser 3, now Visser 1, and the future controller version of Rachel. Pretty intense. Uh, Tobias pulls a real Marco maneuver uh, with attempting to disguise Axe as Visser 3. Um, <laughs> that's the most Marco thing I've seen anybody do other than Marco. It was pretty and, like, wild, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that I love that, uh, that Tobias gets to, like, you know what? No, I'm going to use my ability to, like, socially manipulate people in a way that is going to maybe get us in hot water, but actually ends up doing pretty good for them for a hot water. Yeah, it it gets it saves them for a moment, and then we see the real Visser 3, a.k.a. Visser 1 at this point, who um, has a sort of, like, anime villain moment once again, <laughs> where he's like, ha-ha, I knew you would fall into my trap, and 
et cetera, et cetera. But um, the key here is that they sort of have immunity in the future because uh, Visser 3 needs them to be able to survive here so that they can continue on uh, into the future, into their future, and become his lieutenants, which he describes. And once Re Rachel realizes this, she just starts morphing Bear right there and <laughs> goes after him. So she realizes that their fate in this particular scenario is decided. And therefore, she gets to do whatever she wants. And Mr. Three is panicking. <laughs> right. Like, she, she gets the sort of quantum permission that she sort of gives herself. It, it reflects earlier the situation where she's gotten into a fistfight with an alien and therefore respects no authority. Like, <laughs> yes, she exactly. knows that the worst has already happened. And so she's just like, okay, well, then now nothing scares me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a cool moment. Um, and then they just snap back to reality, right? Whoops, there goes gravity. Uh, it, at the end of chapter 22, I was fully like, okay, wait, hold on. They are still in the Elemist simulation here. Like, I, I was I was like, they've uh, Rachel sort of figures out that the Elemist is trying to sort of bend the rules in their favor. They get into, the, they, they do some, some cool battle morph stuff. Um, they mention a Keanu Reeves movie, and I was trying to figure out which one it was. I think it's uh, Speed, right? Oh, you know, that's probably it. I was... I, you see, I don't know his filmography that well. Um, yeah, it's probably speaking. I happen to just know a lot about Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> we have sort of a reference to a classic sci-fi story um, by their history teacher talking about the butterfly effect uh, and how history is all wrapped up within itself. And so the history teacher has a moment where she looks at Rachel and she says, butterfly, butterfly, butterfly. And... This is unexplained. <laughs> that's why I um, thought they were still in a simulation. I'm like, that's yeah. not normal. Could the el is is there assumption that they're making that the Elemist sort of took her over for a half second to to show them that vision? That's yeah. That's sort of I think the most logical or like it's a feasible weird. Answer. It's a weird backwards roundabout way to do it, but I guess it's. Oh, he did that really say he sense. doesn't interfere with people, so I don't. I don't really know. This is yeah. This is one of those things that maybe we'll never know. And they figure out that the Condrona is on top of one of the um, buildings that was still standing in the future, and that other that was near other buildings that had been cleared away, skyscrapers no less. To make room for the giant York pool, which is, I think it's called the GBS building or something. The EGS tower, which I, uh, there we go. <laughs> I mentioned a little while ago, uh, how anthropologists will like disguise details of the places that they're in. Uh, this is an instance where they did do this because the EGS tower is not a real place as far as I can tell, but ah, it's probably okay. an analog for, you know, another building. Maybe it is actually called GBS. If only Cassandra were here, she'd be able to tell us what the sort of local I know, we don't have that California knowledge. So they they break into the building and they ride the elevator. Marco does a hilarious thought speak gambit with a controller who's guarding the building. Oh, yeah. like, oh, so you are a controller. Cool. I can just like punch you in the face. <laughs> just slam and jam you with my gorilla form until you are definitely not dead, but just resting. Mm -hmm. Taking a nap. Head trauma. Head trauma just hanging out for yeah, a little while. Um, Rachel hits a, an elevator button with her bear paw, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> it's just like clack, clack, clack. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they just, they, they literally go beast mode. Mm -hmm. This, um, 
this has some of my favorite. <laughs> I want. I just wanted to share my three favorite quotes because I, I don't remember exactly when they happened, but they're all sort of around this this spot. Um, <laughs> Marco is talking about Miles being everyone's Miles, and yes, Axe keeps re- referencing Miles on the planet as your Miles. And Marco says, you're on our planet now. They're everyone's miles. And <laughs> Axe says, what about nations that use kilometers? Axe asked m- smugly. <laughs> See, I am learning. That is like my new favorite Axe moment ever. <laughs> that was, I, I counted the number of times that Marco made me laugh uh, in this book. There were three of them. And this was the one time that Axe really made me laugh in this book. I was, was like, that is really such good. a good comeback. Like learning to I, think on his level a little bit. Learning to think on Marco's level. Yeah. Also, just thinking about Axe saying something smugly is <laughs> funny. <laughs> and then, um, oh, I, I quoted this part because I thought it was actually kind of a weird sort of... So, um, or the, when they're about to break into the building, Cassie is the first to morph, naturally. And she, in wolf form, she scares, like, a drunken man away. And she, uh, just by like, going up to him and growling to him at him in wolf form... And she comes back and she says, he decided to go in a different direction. This, <laughs> laugh too. Yeah, this is funny, but also I think, I don't know like what was going on in her head, but he didn't decide anything, right? And like the Elemist's power sort of rests in the Animorph's ability to make their own decision and not his ability to make the decision for them. And that is ultimately sort of like giving them the ability to find the EGS tower themselves is the point of this whole like little narrative that we have here. So Cassie saying he decided to do this when I forced him to do this is like an interesting kind of like maybe there's I don't know if Rachel just put that in herself, but I thought it was I thought it was an interesting little. That's thing. some good. Uh, that's some good deeper meaning in a funny throwaway line. Mm, yeah. And then um, <laughs> the best the best line in the whole book, which is um, when Rachel is um, running towards the room of Horpagier as a bear. And the quote is, watch out, Rachel, Cassie called. There's a door straight ahead of you. Nah, there's no door, I said, and plowed my 800 pounds into a steel door that popped open like the lid of a jack-in-the-box. <laughs> nah, there's no door is like the most Rachel thing. <laughs> um and throw one through a window and he falls 60 stories but he's no he's fine probably fine yeah her because you're no. tough <laughs> yeah this is the the most that they have i think acknowledged I think that they Im- implied that some of the Hork-Bajir were actually dead. They didn't yeah. actually kill them, which is messed up because the Hork-Bajir are unconsenting controllers. But mm-hmm, that's my- we will we will bring up <laughs> the ethics of that again. It'll happen again mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, they at, at least kind of acknowledge it and. Once they've uh, mostly killed them, they realize that they're all very, very injured, and they morph back to human. Rachel does not realize that she's missing a left paw. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rachel saves the day with her elephant morph by just, like, just just shoving the Katrona out the window. Um, <laughs> the fact that they're without their primary source of Katrona rays for three weeks... Which we know within that time that some Yerks die and that therefore 
some controllers who now have their bodies and minds back remember that they were controllers. This is interesting. Rachel sort of glosses over this particular point before the the journal just ends. <laughs> it seems it sounds like she's sort of saying that's another story. I guess that happens later. And maybe later. it's going to be the next book. I'm extremely eager to find out how that happens. How their whole operation doesn't get blown open right there. So we'll we'll find out later, I guess. Yeah, there are also um, smaller condronas that exist. So true. And then the Elmist comes back. You solved my condrona puzzle. <laughs> you solved my existential nightmare. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. your existential nightmare. My existential nightmare remains to be explored. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, Rachel sees her dad off, and he's just like he's just like. I'm sad, Rachel. I'm so sorry that I have to do this. Shut up, Dad. Shut up. (laughs) You suck, Dad. She's got way more important things to do than he does. You probably have something very important to do with your friends. I just have to save the world. And and he says, there's like, if anyone could do it, you could. Which is a nice thing to say. And also just true. And also (laughs) true. (laughs) Yeah, any final thoughts? I really want to know how the Yerks managed to maintain, like, maintain their information ops, like, how they managed to maintain the secret. That, yeah, uh, I might just go read the next journal right now. Yeah, <laughs> we're, yeah we're just gonna, we're yeah. gonna get right into it. What's the next journal called? Oh, great the question. Alien? I always forget to have it, my PDFs open for this exact purpose. It's the alien, I think. The alien? In reference to... There's a lot of aliens. Yeah. There are a lot of aliens going on. In reference to Axe the Alien. Axe the Alien and the Light. Yeah. Who's it narrated by? Axe Escarof is still. Oh! <laughs> it's Axe's first book. Mm-hmm. This is exciting. I'm looking at the cover of this and you could absolutely, like, you could absolutely hop astride this boy and ride into battle. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you right. so much for hanging out and doing this cool project for our professor yeah stay safe yeah. so it was great stay safe stay safe thanks to noelle mccarelli for the use of their song comic book girl off the album field notes from another place and complicated spoon you can find more of noelle's music at noellemccarelli.bandcamp.com or find a link in the show notes the morph report podcast is hosted by hamlet cooper scrivener lamb marina malucci and blythe you can follow us on Twitter at MorphReport. If you have a question for the Pottermorphs, email us and we'll answer it on the show. Our email is themorphreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stop in Armageddon like a comic book girl. Dead on page 11 like a comic book girl. Hey! Cooper doesn't do that. Anderson Cooper and Don Levin are real journalists and they're gay and I love them. We can cut that out.